0: and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, and with me today is Professor Christine Filio of the University of California, Berkeley. Today we're going to discuss her new book, Turkey, A Past Against History, which was published in 2021 by University of California Press. Professor Filio's first book, Biography of an Empire, Governing the Ottomans in an Age of Revolution, was focused on Ottoman elites in the 19th century. Her new book looks at the life and works of Refik Ali Karai a writer and government official, also born into an elite family, but whose alignment with the opposition, or in Turkish, the muhalafet, meant that his ability to negotiate the transition from empire to republic was a complex one. Through considering Refi Karay's life and works, Professor Filio helps us understand the fraught transition from empire to republic. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome her to the program. Welcome, Professor.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, well, so given that this is your second book, and at least in terms of time period, rather different from your first, could you talk a little bit about your background? What drew you to the history of the Ottoman Empire and early Turkish Republic? And the, how do you choose your topics and these protagonists you look at?
1: Sure. Happy to answer that. Um My background, well, my family history is a bit related uh, to all of this. All of my grandparents came from uh, Ottoman lands, although they were Greek, and so they emigrated straight to America, uh, which meant that I had a lot of question marks growing up about what the Ottoman Empire was and why (laughs) we were Greek but from Turkey, um, which nobody ever really explained in school in America, uh, in the late 20th century at least. Um, so I was kind of always intrigued by it. And then um, I I was originally, even as an undergrad, I was interested in the population exchange, the 1922 population exchange between Greece and Turkey. Um, and at that point, of course, I was thinking about it from the Greek perspective, about Greek refugees from Asia Minor. Um, and I then got pulled further back in time because um, I really kind of was fascinated by the fact that the Ottoman Empire was both so close in time and yet so remote and elusive at the same time. So living in Greece, living in Northern Greece, which was Ottoman until 1912, um, and I was living there in the 90s, there were still a lot of people alive that had been born as Ottoman subjects. And of course, the traces in the city were very um, clear. And I just was really intrigued by this. How how did we get from (laughs) this Ottoman past, which is still kind of all around us to this present, which is so different. So that brought me to the early 19th century for my first book. And I really wanted to understand that moment of transition, um, that really the first moment of Ottoman to post-Ottoman when the Greek revolution started and, and what did that mean when Ottoman history started to depart from, or Greek history started to depart from Ottoman history, Um, And then, so the second book I see as kind of a sequel of sorts in that the first book was about the beginning of the end of the empire. And this book is really about the end of the end of the empire. Um, And from, again, it's not from the perspective of Greek elites because Greek elites didn't occupy the same position anymore a century later. But in a sense, it is a similar perspective of someone who was very, both close to power, in this case, Kali Karai was part of the establishment in a broader sense, and yet shut out in important ways as being part of, connected to this concept of muhalafet that I write about. Um, so as for <laughs> choosing topics and protagonists, I think it's really serendipity. Um, for the first book, I had originally started to work on the island of Samos, which was an autonomous polity. Um, in That grew out of the Greek War of Independence. And so it was allowed to be this separate little polity, still under the sovereignty of the Ottomans, but autonomous, and it was mostly Greek. And they were run, the, the polity was run by these um, Greeks from Istanbul. And Bogoridis, who was the subject of the first book, was the first prince of Samos. And so I found him kind of through the back door <laughs> um, and then ended up writing the book about him and his ilk. Um, so that was kind of serendipity. And then this book, as I was finishing that last book, I was reading around, um, kind of interestingly, kind of hoping to find a topic that wasn't political just to find a cultural or literary topic. And I stumbled onto this play that Karai had written in 1929, um, Delhi, which means mad. And I write about, I've written an article about it and I've mentioned it in passing in the book. And it's, um, it's kind of a Rip Van Winkle story about a guy who goes catatonic on the eve of the 1908 constitutional revolution and wakes up in Istanbul in 1928. And of course, who's the one that's gone mad? Is he mad because he doesn't understand what's going on, or is everyone around him mad because they've gone through these kind of <laughs> um, whiplash inducing changes um, in, in 20 years? And um, I was so fascinated. That someone would dare to write a satire of, <laughs> of basically Kemalist reforms, like at their height. Um, and I just had to know who this person was. And, and the more I dug into it, the more fascinating he became, because his writing is just incredible and incredibly illuminating about this transitional period and this transitional generation that we usually you know, we usually hear a very filtered story about that experience of transition. So it just opened a whole world to me. So really, it's good fortune, I suppose, is is how I choose topics and protagonists. Well, luck's
0: important, right? That's great. I mean, I mean, so before we talk about him specifically, uh, let's talk about this idea of Mahalafet in a little bit more detail. Conceptually, it's a a large part of the book. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about it? And Uh, what what you think this book and his life can tell us about it in a a general sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, Muhalifet is kind of the analytical concept uh, at the center of the book. And it's, um, again, it was this point of confusion for me living in, you know, living and doing research in Turkey, mostly in Istanbul all those years for my first book. And then also observing and taking part in conversations with Turkish friends about, the politics of the moment in the late 20th and early 21st century, this word kept coming up. And I, and I was so intrigued by it and the different uses and the kind of, it had this strangely um, loaded valence, and I couldn't really understand where that was coming from. Um, And so then the more I started to do this project, I started to understand, you know, a lot of this is about translation. I'm not a Turk, I'm an American. So I wanted to understand, well, what is Is it opposition? It's not just what we would call opposition. It's also what we might call dissent, dissidence, right? Disagreement, it's got all of these things kind of bound up with it. Um, And so I um, started to realize that, you know, this period from 1908 to 1950, which Eric Surher calls the Young Turk period or the Unionist period, right? um which spans the 1922-23 abolishment of the sultanate and establishment of the turkish republic um, it's not just a period of lack of of lack of an opposition party there was no sustained sanctioned space for an institutional opposition right but what i found by in doing this research is that instead there was this variegated Contradictory, confusing, fascinating space that was kind of um, embodied in this word and concept of muhalifets. So it's it's as if the word was a surrogate for the actual opposition party in these years of transition and kind of um, in and change from a uh, sultanate caliphate to the Kemalist Republic. Um, and so yeah. So then it just, it just became, um, it just became so fascinating that uh, even that we, the baggage of that. So 1950, uh, 1946 to 50, we get this transition to a multi-party system in Turkey. Um, And then of course there is a sanctioned opposition party, namely the Democrat party um, in the fifties. And that experiment doesn't end very well it ends with the coup in 1960 and a new constitution and then a different kind of life for muhalifet and opposition parties um but what i contend is that this history that i trace through karai and his works from 1908 to 1950 is built into this word as it as it then continues to be used in the 50s and after and even today um, and it it happens and what's so fascinating is that most of the people deploying the word on different sides of the different points in the political spectrum they aren't having an explicit conversation about what muhalifat means they're just using the word but if you observe closely different people are using it to mean different things so it can mean the public the dissenting public intellectual right the ahmed altan figure, right? Um, It can mean even Orhan Pamuk, to the extent that he makes political critiques and commentaries as an intellectual and a writer, he's kind of engaging in muhalefet, which is what I define as kind of an elite form of dissent, opposition, resistance, right? We're not talking about rebellions off in the countryside or the Kurds or whatever. We're talking about um, this, this kind of sense of speaking truth to power, but from within power, um, it also then means the actual opposition party. So Salahatin Demirtash, for instance, or Kulich today could be seen as you know representatives of that kind of muhalifet. Um, but in an important way, because of this earlier history where muhalifets, and we can talk a bit more about that, muhalifet is implicitly an opposition against the Committee of Union and Progress, <coughs> that internal conflict battle gets carried through and and there's an important way in which AKP and the leaders of AKP see themselves as enacting muhalefet even though they've been in power for nearly 20 years. So it's a fascinating word that I think reveals so much about kind of the contradictions of power in 20th century Turkey, um, if you look at it from a slight remove... (laughs) like I think I've tried to do. Yeah, well, I mean,
0: one thing early on in the book which struck me is the point you make that, so Refik he's born in between these two eras, maybe we can say, of Fet. So there's the young Ottomans from the 1860s and 70s. These are constitu- associated with the constitutional era then. But that constitution is put to the side, and there's a period of absolutism under Abdulhamid II. And so there's this period in which he's growing up where that, that's the type of opposition, this older type of opposition. But once he's becoming an adult, becoming involved in politics, there's this new type of Mahalafet, right, that's emerging, as you say, as part of this young Turk movement. So what is the relationship between this older type of um, these young Ottomans and these young Turks? Sometimes I think it's muddied in the literature. With these two groups and how does he fit into that?
1: Yes, I think you're right. I think it's very much elided in the literature, certainly um, in the Turkish education curriculum and everything. I think from what I understand, people don't even necessarily understand that there's a distinction between the young Ottomans and the young Turks in English, lit- English language scholarship as well. It's kind of always presented as, Oh, there was the young Ottomans the liberal constitutional movement Abdul Hamid, you know, put a stop to it. And then the next gen, it went to sleep for a while and then it woke up again. And the next generation was the young Turks as if because they all claimed the banner of constitutionalism, then it must be the same group of people with the same sensibilities. And actually what you find is that, well, no, (laughs) it wasn't that simple. Certainly the young Ottomans, which was, you know, a relatively small group of people, right. These kind of French educated bureaucrats who um drafted who sort of designed drafted this constitution and um debated what it would mean, like what a hypothetical constitutional order should look like. Um, the Namuk Kemals, for instance, and, and they did use the word Muharafat quite frequently in their newspapers in the 1860s and 70s. And it was a positive value. It was a principle, right? That in a constitutional order uh what the part of the definition of a constitutional order is to have different voices and to have disagreement and to have some mechanisms to resolve that and that's what that's the very essence of constitutionalism in a way right um and then it did go to sleep for a while eighteen seventy eight and then this young Turk movement grew from the, I don't know, late 1880s, if we define the the start of the CUP, even though it was a secret organization. But we now know like late 1880s is the beginning of that. And then it, it this movement to restore the constitution grows in uh, exile communities abroad and in the military within the Ottoman Empire Um And of course, this is, I mean, we need only refer to the works of Shukru Hanyulu to understand how complicated the Young Turk movement was and how full of different factions and tendencies and the liberals were in there. So there was a direct continuity from these young Ottomans in one of the factions of the Young Turks. There was also the CUP. There were also the Armenians, you know, through 1908. They were part of this coalition Um, And so what we see just on the eve of the 1908 revolution, late 1907, is they're starting to use that word, muhalifin, actually a form of it. And uh, they're calling the second Congress of the Opposition in Paris. And they start to it's not no longer a hypothetical ideal. It's it's actually now being referred to as the actual opposition coalition in opposition to Abdul Hamid's despotism. So for a moment there, it becomes this specific um, political entity of these three bodies, the liberals, the CUP, and the Armenians. Um, And shortly thereafter, they force Abdul Hamid to reinstate the constitution. And then, so what I argue is that this word muhalifet, as it's used in this arc of the 20th century it grows out of this split that happens within the Young Turk coalition after 1908, right? So there's a splintering that happens. It's very well known that the splintering happens, but as the CUP starts to take the place of iktidar or power, this word muhalifet becomes um, synonymous with the kind of liberal opposition to the CUP. Even though the CUP has not formally taken power Maybe you could argue in January 1913 when they storm the sublime port and they basically have a coup, sure, but they're still not the sultanate. You'd think that the sultanate would be the power. And in a funny kind of way, the Ottoman government itself, like all of these bureaucrats who kind of hail from the same background as young Ottomans, the liberals, they actually become the opposition, even though they're in, they are the establishment. And so it's a fascinating way to see. The effect that the CUP has on Ottoman power. Um, so this word by 1913, when 800 of these men that are associated with muhalifets are deported to Sinop on the Black Sea by Jamal Pasha, um, that word now has gone from being a positive principle in a hypothetical constitutional order <laughs> 50 years earlier. To being a specific coalition of constitutional groups against Abdul Hamid. And now, five years later, it's become a specific group of 800 men who are kind of um, associates of, Sabah, of Prince Sabah Hittin and or parts of the Liberal Opposition Party and these dissenting writers um, and intellectuals who constitute a threat or a danger to this emergent, um, um, you know, um, leadership of the CUP.
0: Well, and, and Rafi Khalid is among them. So, you know, he's about 20, I guess, when, in 1908. And by the time he's getting sent off to sinop you know, he's, what, 25? So this is a very formative period in his life. I and mean, how is he reacting to this, this constitutional revolution and... How does he end up on the wrong side of it, so to speak?
1: Yes. Yeah. So he comes of age, like you said, just as the constitutional revolution is happening. Timing is everything, clearly. He has these ambitions to be a writer. So he starts, and of course, you know, they're relatively stymied before 1908 anyway, because nobody's allowed to publish much of anything. Um, so he um, jumps into the this new arena of, press freedom and opens a newspaper for a while and, you know, writes for other papers. And, um, and then he kind of comes into his own um, 1911, 1912 as, kirpi, as this um, um, nom de plume, which means the porcupine or the hedgehog. And he emerges as a quite well-known writer then who writes these satirical kind of punchy pieces of social and political commentary, um, he writes also kind of social realist um little short stories. He's very much enamored of uh, de Maupassant, so he's you know which what interestingly was passé by that point, of course in France, but was still like really interesting for <laughs> for him and his circle in the Ottoman Empire so clearly there's there's other value to de Maupassant at that point um and um yeah, so he becomes well known he kind of pokes fun at the, again, the contradictions of power in Ottoman constitutionalism. So not even always directly at the CUP because in these early years, in 1909 to 1912, sure, the CUP is a big part of the picture and the political problem if you're not a member of it. Um, but it's not, it hasn't yet formally reached the point where they're formally in power and can be really targeted as the main problem. So he, he's, you know, poking fun at at. Just I guess the 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 absurdities, I guess, of Ottoman constitutionalism in practice. Um, and he then is part of this group of eight hundred deportees because of one story, uh, supposedly. again, we never know um, <laughs> why these decisions are actually made, but but supposedly he's deported. Uh, he's on the list because of a particular story he wrote that had a jab in it about Talat Pasha. And it was about Talat Pasha's class origins, let's say. So he made a joke about how people who are more comfortable wearing a herka or like an old, old world robe um, look ridiculous when they put on a French style suit. So you can imagine (laughs) what that would mean for Talat Pasha, right? So that's not, that's like, he crossed the red line with that joke apparently. So, um, but you know, that's the kind of thing he's not, I don't think he's ever formally a member of the um, Freedom and Entente Party, which was the main uh, liberal opposition party to the CUP, but he's kind of in those circles. um, And he And this is one of the interesting things about Muhalefet is that he also, if we look very carefully, he doesn't actually point out the hypocrisies of the Freedom and Entente party. Namely, when they come into power, the kinds of things they do, which are also repressive, he refrains from that. He also does not, as far as I can tell, he, he wrote a lot. So he may have written some things that, that I'm not aware of, but as the P, as the porcupine he does not seem to um to depict or to to sort of um make much of the loss in the Balkan war now we know from ayali's work from you know from just like conventional wisdom in ottoman history that this was a huge this defeat in the Balkan war was like a huge catalyst for <clears throat> kind of radicalization all kinds of things. For the CUP, they come back to power and they never leave again because of this. Um, And it's interesting that he doesn't mention it. And, you know, logically, we could conclude it's because that was a loss taken by the opposition, by the Freedom and Entente party. They were the ones in power when that defeat happened. So he's actually not writing things that are going to make that side look bad um so that that's something that we really have to read between the lines to understand because he's also very good at um <clears throat> well self promotion and he's very good at framing and reframing the past at different moments in time to to suit himself and he's very good he's an excellent writer so he's extremely effective at doing that um so it was a challenge for me to get at that layer underneath of like what is he not saying and what does that tell us about Muhalifetz in 20th century Turkey? Well, I mean that's
0: it's also very interesting too because during his period in well first in Sinop, but then in other cities too. So his years of internal exile. I mean, this is during this is during World War One. So this is the period where I mean Greeks on the in the coast areas of Western Turkey are being pushed up to the coast um, in the 1913 1913. Um, Armenian genocide begins in 1915, and just widespread, widespread violence in addition to those, those two very famous incidents. So during this whole period, he's moving around from city to city as an internal exile. So what is he doing during this time period and how are these big events reflected in his writing or are they?
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly what I try to take up in chapter three. So he, um, in Sinop, it was kind of like a big party because he was there with 800 other intellectuals, writers, um Mullahs, all kinds of people. It was apparently a very diverse range of, of socioeconomic <laughs> actors and cultural actors there, and they were all in this charming little port town on the Black Sea with tavern with Greek tavernas and and whatnot. And so that first year uh, was okay. What well, year and a half was was uh, seemed to be quite nice. Um, he was they still he was getting a stipend because he had a he had a um, bureaucratic post just before the um, January 1913 storming of the sublime port, when the liberals were in power, he had gotten a post. And of course, this also tells us a lot about Muhalafat that, like, the you know, CUP comes to power and he doesn't actually get fired, he just gets kind of retired to his parents' house <laughs> on the Asian side. And so, he gets to continue to collect a little salary. So, even in exile, he's collecting a, a stipend. Um, and things get a little tougher in well, then, shortly after the war begins. Most of these deportees get pardoned and get let back to Istanbul because of the war. It's him with only about 15 others that has to stay, (laughs) which, you know, it's funny because it's like, well, he's a a writer of satire. Like, how dangerous could he have been? But I guess he's one of the 15, like, hardcore threats. Um, So he and 15 others stay in Sinop and then they get brought to Chorum in the summer of 15. um, And I try to trace what that might have meant because that was of course a moment when a lot of armenians were being forcibly marched and massacred through that entire area um and um then in late summer 1916 he gets transferred to ankara um and that's where some really interesting stuff happens. Uh, He's only there for a few months, but he uh, witnesses this big fire that happened in in Ankara in 1916. And um, Turkish scholars recently have sort of documented the way that that fire was part of a larger policy, um, of scorched earth policy, I guess, in in Anatolia by the CUP regime in, in the war. And so he witnesses that but he doesn't write about it at the time. And the, the Vali, the governor of the Ankara, of Ankara at that moment, who helped him get to Ankara, who accepted his transfer request to Ankara, and who then helps him get on to Bilajik, the next place that he goes after Ankara, is Dr. Rashid, who is, uh, Quite a controversial character, known as the butcher of Diyarbakir, which is where his posts, his previous post before Ankara was, um, and um, hard to argue that um, Dr. Rashid was some kind of liberal intellectual muhalif. Um, he was quite hardcore about the genocide, and so we and and you know Rifi Khalid, he's very um, you quite you never quite know when he's being ironic when he's writing, but he writes a, at a few different points about what how warm dr rashid was to him and how he gave him like a gift of ankara pears and how he he graciously helped him get to Bilajik um, without like the police escort and everything like in a in a way that he could retain some of his dignity and so he has these positive things to say about dr rashid um, and one wonders if he's not laying that on thick as a kind of irony who knows he definitely benefited from the relationship which Makes us wonder a lot about the claims of the Muhalafet as being these principled claims against the CUP and their abuses of power, um, when of course they also then benefit from CUP power when it's convenient for them. So it raises a lot of questions. Um, I do think also there's a way in which he was, on the one hand, exiled, of course, he was in internal exile for five years. On the other hand, they did seemed to take care to put him in places that would be mostly insulated from the privations of war, from the actual front. He wasn't in the thick of any of the horrific um, violence that was happening. So again, that's the privilege. That is the privilege that comes with being part of the establishment and being Muslim and Turkish and muhalefet rather than being Armenian or Greek or Mm. (laughs) um, yeah. Well, so I mean, after
0: this period ends, after these years of, of exile end, it, the well, World War One ends, and that means that he's able to go back to um, Istanbul, right? And in Istanbul, he becomes part of the post-war government. The uh, CUP leaders they they flee. The uh, British occupy Istanbul, and he's part of. He's actually part of the government. So he's part of. He's running the Ottoman Empire, what still exists of it, as opposed to, say, the nationalist movement that we usually read about in the, in the scholarship. So how did he, as a still Ottoman official, but dependent on the British, in opposition to the CUP that's fled, but also in opposition to this nationalist movement that's emerging after the war, how did he perceive these nationalists and their movement? And uh, how do how does understanding his stance help us think about some of the ways we normally think about this period in Turkish history, where it's transitioning from, well, Ottoman history to Turkish history, as it were?
1: Yeah. Uh, these four years from 1918 to 1922 are incredibly complex. And it's one of the many fascinating things about this period is that this is precisely the period that is how shall I say covered over or sidestepped with the um, rupture paradigm of Nutuk basically of um, of official history in the Turkish Republic for many decades right that that there there is a complete rupture from the Ottoman from Ottoman sovereignty to Turkish Republican sovereignty. And this is how it happened. It happened when, you know, Mustafa Kemal landed in Samsun and gathered this movement. And and we know the story and the Istanbul government was off over there doing, you know, dead, you know, (laughs) you know, a dead letter basically, um, and when we look at it through Rafi Khalid's perspective, we can see the incredible complexity <laughs> of, and the many, different, um, the many different points and the many different um, uh, watersheds that were even just within those four years. Because we have to get from the CUP, the unionists running the government to having kind of taken over the state through the duration of the war, right, um, in a sort of dictatorship they disband late 1918. There's this kind of chaotic soul searching going on the intellectual the sort of the establishment is reeling, right? Because the CUP is bankrupt and gone. And yet the liberals, the muhalifets do not have it in them to actually take the reins in any significant way. They're old, they're kind of, a lot of them are just obsolete. They don't, they're don't. they not very effective, um, which is maybe why the CUP took over in the first place. And so they're kind of just scrambling. And of course, the British, you know, this is the Ottoman cabinet, the Ottoman governments that the British prefer to have in power anyway, because the British are basically occupying. So there's this soul searching going on. The national movement is taking shape in Anatolia. And these muhalifs like Rafi Khalid, Ali Kemal and a few others, um, their big objection, they have a lot of objections to the national movement, but one of their big objections is the continuity <laughs> from the CUP to the national movement. Now we can debate that, whether that's true or not. Eric Zucker, of course, found in the eighties that, that it is true in a lot of, on a lot of levels of personnel and um, institutions. Um, and what's fascinating is that these actors watching it happen that was their critique (laughs) is that, you know, this is nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. This is the CUP in disguise. And and of course, that's what the British thought too. And that is what the non-Muslims also thought. So that, so their big critique was the very thing that then gets completely obfuscated in official history. Right. Um, and so they, and, and what I argue in the book is that, you know, in, in the midst of these different turning points, um, in these four years, there's a critical mass of Ottoman intellectuals, members of the Ottoman establishment, bureaucracy, who need to be won over by the nationalists. And these people, many of them are not as hardcore anti-CUP as Rifik Ali and his buddies, but they are definitely in a quandary. They don't really like the CUP. They don't want to actually abandon the Ottoman government. They also don't want to be under formal British occupation. So this is why in March of 1920, this critical event happens when the British formally take over and storm the ministries. That then prompts a critical mass of this Ottoman establishment to defect to Anatolia and support the nationalist movement. But we really see in sharp distinction to the nationalist framework of the the nation united against foreign occupiers, right? And that's how the Turkish Republic came to be. Through Rifi Khalid's eyes, what we see is there's this internal struggle that was animating history. And the external occupiers were almost just like a byproduct of that. So it really looks quite different. Um, And he was he was in the government. I wouldn't say he was running the government. He was like the, the <laughs> telegraph director. He was at a crucial point in the bureaucracy, given that the main, the only means of long distance communication at the time was the telegraph. And Mustafa Kemal, in order to to um, mobilize the movement, had to send information about it across Anatolia and back to the Ottoman government. And so, to be the one in Istanbul blocking. And forbidding, prohibiting those telegrams from being circulated, and prohibiting telegraph operators in Anatolia from receiving and transmitting these telegrams was a big deal, <laughs> for sure. Um, and so he he played that role, and he he believed in it. He wasn't just following orders. If you read his writings at the time, he truly believed in that opposition to Mustafa Kemal and the nationalists. Um, and what I show, and what I kind of discovered in this. Research is that it wasn't. I mean, because he's known for this telegraph episode, and so everybody's like, "Oh, right, that's why he was exiled or he fled when the the nationalists won because he went up against Mustafa Kemal at this important moment." Whatever. Yes, he did do that. But <laughs> once he stepped down from that post when the Damat cabinet fell uh, in October of 1919, he then continued to enact muhalifets by writing countless stories. Against the unionists and the connection between the unionists and the nationalists, and then in kind of kind of constructing this profile and this archetype of a muhalif, so he he so this word that we assume was always important actually took on special importance at this moment in time, um, and it took on kind of a full range of associations and meanings and, and this drama of like the tragic hero the muhalif as the tragic hero is the one who keeps going up against the unionists and keeps losing and is kind of this impotent figure in a way um, and and that those stories get completely buried afterward and even when he republishes his work after the alphabet reforms and uh, reform and after he returns to Turkey, those stories do not make it into the new editions. For the most part, and that I found really fascinating. <laughs> huh.
0: Well, I mean, when when the nationalists finally do are victorious, he does have he does have to leave again. And I, honestly, one of my favorite chapters was the one dealing with his immediate years in the mid nineteen twenties. I guess we can say. And and once again, he's in exile. Now he's in exile in Syria, and. As you said, with Sinop, it does often seem kind of fun being in exile, almost from this at least if you're this guy. But um, it's still, still, I found it fascinating because he's still following events in, in in what's now the Republic of Turkey. And it's not as though there is this break from his perspective. He's still intriguing. He's still involved. So maybe you, if you could talk a little bit about some of his... Initial activities uh, once he's in exile—they're fascinating to me.
1: Yes, yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the story too. Actually, Um, he um, he flees in November 1922 after receiving the news that his closest associate Ali Kemal has been lynched, has been detained, and then lynched on the road to court martial. Um, And he sees the writing on the wall quite literally, and he opts not to take British protection. He, there's this fascinating moment when he's, when all the Muhalifs are filing into the British embassy, now the British consulate, which we all know if we've spent time in Istanbul, in, in Beyoğlu, and they're all filing in and he just gets this sick. He basically has like a PTSD episode <laughs> because he gets like, he looks around and he's getting these flashbacks from Days when he was going being deported to Sinop, and he gets like nauseous and sweaty and just like has this panic attack and leaves again. So therefore, is on his own to save himself and get out. So he he opt he he foregoes um, British protection, um, and he then ends up on a French boat. The Pierre Loti, I think, is the name of the boat, which is also funny if you're up on Istanbul trivia. Um, and he ends up in Beirut settles in Junye, which was then a village outside of Beirut. Now it's a suburb, I think, of the city. Um, and he, there are other members of the Ottoman uh, dynasty there. There's a, Because what's happening is the Turkish Republic, as it takes shape, um, can expropriate and does expropriate the lands within Turkey that belong to the Ottoman dynasty, but not in Syria or Egypt or wherever. So there are these like stragglers of, from the Ottoman dynasty. There are these other exiles, um, just this kind of ramshackle um, group of people that he associates with. And he, the first thing he does, spring 1923, so he gets there, let's say, November, December 1922. He settles in Junye. Spring 1923, first thing he does, sits down and starts writing his memoir of the armistice period, beginning with the moment that he learned about the Ottoman defeat in World War I in late 1918. This is before Nutsuk has been delivered, four years later. (laughs) This is before there's any official history of the Turkish War of Independence, of the Turkish nation state, anything. The Republic has not even been proclaimed yet, because that happens in October of 1923. So he sits down and writes these incredible memoirs of that period from the perspective of him in the Istanbul government. in then he's requested, so his he still clearly is friends with his um, Istanbul press buddies um, in Aksham, particularly in the newspaper Aksham. And they ask him to send his memoir and they send it, he sends it and they read it and they decide to start publishing it. The first installment, you know, everything was published in installments then, right? So the first installment was published January 15th, 1924. At this point, it's a fascinating moment in the early Republic. The Republic has just been proclaimed a few months before. The the constitution is not yet worked out. <laughs> They're they are in the middle of trying to figure out the constitution. The caliphate has not yet been abolished. It's this very precarious moment for hegemony, for the Kemalists or for for whoever that is in Ankara, for the nationalists turning Kemalists. Um, and it engenders a huge controversy. There are all these articles about whether... Um, t- so he was... a. Uh, after he left, they created this thing called the list of 150 undesirables. Those 150 individuals were I can't really say stripped of citizenship because they had left before. So they were not given Turkish citizenship and they were banned, banished from the country. So there's a whole debate that ensues about whether members of the list of 150, because they're traitors to the nation, they shouldn't be allowed to be published in Turkey, this whole thing. And I go into the debate and to really the shocking level of um, insubordination on the part of members of the Istanbul press scene, the Istanbul newspaper scene, um, about Ankara. And they have no qualms about calling out, you know, (laughs) well, you know, you can't just tell us not to print this when there's no law about it. Like, we're we're supposed to be living in a in a state with law and order. And like, you can't just do that. And there's just all kinds of contestation going on at this moment. Again, not something we get access to usually because those early republic the year the early years of the republic. I don't believe there's a ton of access to archival sources, direct official archival sources for those years. It was years when there was a lot of um, filtering going on. I think Mustafa Kemal himself and his circle were trying to figure out what parts of the past, what parts of the CUP were safe to stay. Who who was deemed trustworthy who what what is what is this new power going to be and how are we going to to wield it right and this episode with his memoir is just so emblematic of the 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 contestation and the precarity of this moment um and the kinds of i mean you can imagine and i i translate the entirety of the first installment um in the book, in chapter five, and I end, there's a very last paragraph of it, which is in the 1924 newspaper itself, in Aksham, in that first installment, it is not in any subsequent edition of the memoirs that are published from 1948 on. And it's fascinating, because it is, it's a critique of the CUP. And it's, um, it's basically saying that, like, you know, we got rid of the CUP, but only on the condition of having to get rid of the whole empire. So there's like no consolation to be found. Right. And so it's, it's a very different way of looking at the situation from the nationalists, which is basically like the empire had sold itself out anyway. So we had to throw it overboard and save Turkish sovereignty. It's a completely different approach. Um, So, yeah, so he continues for the first five-ish years to engage in Muhalefet to stay abreast of the developments in Turkey I think until 27 28 they're not really sure that the whole project is going to hold together um so there are different actors kind of trying to attack it from different directions which is again interesting because we hear about the Izmir um assassination plot which you know is also controversial in and of itself but um but we don't hear too much discussion of like all these other aggrieved parties that might have been uh, trying to undermine the republic at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: I've I've read things in recent years about say you know, there's Armenian groups and Kurdish groups and all these different groups in like Aleppo for example. But I don't I I haven't read much of anything about Turkish groups. So that again that that struck me as fascinating. Um, one thing that you reminded me of is. I mean I think it's telling uh, the publisher of Akşam this guy Nedimettin uh, Sadak I believe is the guy's name he eventually becomes the foreign minister in the you know the republic of turkey's government so you see with even these people who are defending refik Khalid at one point eventually make their peace and so does he right so after as you say after 27 when Mustafa Kemal gives this toturk and kind of puts his official stamp on the regime's history. Refi Khalid starts to try to improve his relationship, and by the late mid late 30s, he's working maybe hand in glove with the regime in Ankara with, during the um, Sanjak of Alexandretta or the the Hatay crisis. So uh, maybe this is something we can come to. Why do you think Refi Hariri decided to try to accommodate with the regime and what do you think this tells us about how Mahalafet changed during this time period, the the 1930s, I suppose, particularly?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I really take that up from the outside because I'm following his story and he was physically on the outside for the Kemalist period. There is a whole story there, though, about obviously this new establishment takes shape after after power is kind of cemented in 27 um, and within that new establishment there's still going to be muhalifat this time it's muhalifat's internal opposition within the jhape within the the one it's a one party republic now so if you have grievances you're going to have to keep them contained within the party right so there are fissures and disagreements mainly over but from what we know, mainly over the question of statism and and uh, the economy, right? To what extent it should be a planned economy, to what extent free enterprise, right? So these two kind of incipient parties are operating within the one-party state by the time we get to the 30s, um, and certainly after Mustafa Kem- after Atatürk's death. Um, and what I get is that rifi Ali was... Um, you know, the, the Denjbetin Sadak figure, I get the sense that in the new in this newly configured establishment, he was within it and in this kind of liberal muhalifat dimension of it. And so Rafiq Khalid seemed to have stayed in touch with those people. And then Jalal Bayar was more amenable to letting Rafiq Khalid back in, to pardoning him. So there there is and then there's the the hardcore, um, the hardcore Kemalis like Inonu and those people who probably did not Want to let him back in. Um, so there are different configurations that, that take shape because it, it is a new state formation. It is a new consensus among the establishment. Um, and so Rafi Ali, instead of being like the Holiday Deep kind of Muhalif, where Holiday Edip was part of the independent struggle, of course, an important actor in the independent struggle. And by this point, by the time 1927 rolls around, she's self exiled in protest at Mustafa Kemal's kind of dictatorial way of operating, right? So some of those muhalifs choose to leave because of grievances that they have with the way this new power is being configured. Rafiq Khalid, again, he's sort of this, we could see him as quite an opportunist, right? That like, He's going to keep enacting muhalifat as long as things are precarious, right, and contentious. And then once it's clear that, like, the hegemony is solid and, you know, the state has, quote unquote, put its affairs in order, um, then he'll jump on the bandwagon. Right. And so and he he portrays it in his um, correspondence with um, with his very close friend, Rizat who was also on the list of 150 um, for having negotiated the Treaty of Sev, of course. Um, and was also opposed to the nationalists and everything so he's they're writing to each other and he explains that he had this change of heart this sudden change of convictions because his new wife um his second wife was much much younger than him and was the daughter of another muhalif that was in that was exiled in Junier. and um she apparently convinced him she she kind of got him to come around um to the Kemalists Republican sensibility and, you know, they had a son and they wanted to go back home. And so, you know, he, he, you know, there were personal motivations, family motivations. And then, as I said, there was kind of this, um, this opportunism that was part of it. Um, Hatay is to me still somewhat of an unresolved puzzle because he clearly, Hatay, his activities in favor of the Turkish bid for Hatay were definitely the catalyst for his pardon or the pretext or catalyst or both for his pardon. Um, It's unclear to me though, he had ties to Hatay from the beginning. So he sought out connections in Hatay and Antakya, um, partly because he wanted to be with Turkish speakers and he didn't speak Arabic. And so it was a natural, you know, Aleppo where Armenians were there, were speaking Turkish. He gravitated there. He used to go often to Hatay for duck hunting and for fraternizing with, you know, the Turkish speaking locals. And um, so it's, 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 Ambiguous in his writings and his reflections about to what at what point did that those connections become politicized and become important leverage for him? Um, he claims that you know he was revered by the youth of Hattai and um, a, and they gave him these on, gifts to honor him and everything long before the Hattai issue was politicized. So he was there first. So is it that he? He earned this cultural capital in Hatay, and then the the whole issue got politicized, and he was able to seize on that by serendipity? Or, you know, we know that Hatay was a desideratum of the nationalists from the beginning. So did he kind of see that happening? And and what I show is that Hatay itself was this heterogeneous space where it, it had these muhalefet elements, because it was outside the Republic, but it was still, there was a large turcophone population. Um, it was a place where, and the French encouraged this, where opposition elements could kind of collect and um, and be given state positions in the French administration and things like that. So it went from being this kind of wild west <laughs> zone to then being a place where one could prove one's patriotism to the Turkish Republic, and it became this kind of space to enact national unity across the different parties and tendencies of Turkey. So it's, it, it's again, I, there's a lot of work still to be done on this issue, I think, because there's, there's definitely, um, there's a lot of nuance and complexity in the Hatay issue. But so he used it as a stepping stone to ultimately Get pardoned um, before before Ataturk's death. So Ataturk himself pardoned Refik Ali Karay in the summer of thirty eight, um, and so he got back months before Ataturk died. Hmm. Well, so you know, in the interest of,
0: of time, I've been doing a disservice to a really important element of the book, which is your uh, literary, uh, your translations, your discussions um, uh, of these stories and their significance, which is which is really wonderful, and so. The final thing I wanted to talk about was to look at one of these uh, readings in particular, um, because as you say, once Rafi gets back, he starts revising a lot of his old works. And in doing this, he is is playing with this, this official and unofficial history. So I thought one of the best examples you give of this is his short story, Ankara Fire or Ankara Yangana. And so maybe this is a good way for us to end, to discuss this and what it represents with some of the larger themes of your book.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this kind of is a thread that I tried to weave through the book, um, having to do with the the Armenian genocide, for sure, and having to do with the kind of um, stark contrast between in Rafiq Khalid's story, history, recent the recent past is constantly being cast and recast according to the moment, as opposed to the official history that's struck in 1927 with Nutuk and really stays rigid. It has this scripture-like quality, of course, and it's taught as catechism in schools and all of that. Very, This is really gets to the core of the book and why it's called the past against history, right? Because history, official history, is this unchanging narrative and framework that that really does not have to do with individual experience (laughs) of history Um, and there's this past that is malleable and um full of different dimensions that can activate depending on one's needs in the moment and so as i point out in his earlier in when he's in exile in anatolia he's you know clearly witness to at least the episode of the Ankara fire that's associated with the Armenian genocide, if not some of the deportations, we don't know for sure. Doesn't write about it then, but we know he experienced the Ankara fire because he chooses to write about it in August of 1921. Why? Because he wants to point out the connection between the national movement at that point in Ankara and uh, um, fighting nearby and the CUP that was in power in 1916 when the fire happened in Ankara. So he writes this fascinating essay, Ankara Yanguna, the Ankara fire in 1921, about 1916. He depicts it. um, Again, it's subtle. He implies agency (laughs) intentionality behind the fire. Uh, He mentions in passing in the midst of all the chaos and the mayhem of this fire, he runs into an old friend of his from Istanbul and they sit down in the midst of like bodies being carried back and forth and they find these two chairs and they sit down and they start catching up. And his friend is telling him all about the horrible corruption of the unionists in Istanbul and the kind of, Abuses of power and the just terrible stuff, monstrous stuff that they're doing, um, and so you know, CUP and then by extension the nationalists do not come off very well <laughs> in this in this essay. Um, uh, this essay doesn't get translate doesn't get much fanfare in the Republic as you might imagine. He then returns in nineteen thirty late mid nineteen thirty eight immediately sets, starts to. Um, Prepare his works, uh, basically a full series of his works, re editions in modern Turkish um, with the new alphabet. And in doing so, he makes some important changes. He he leaves some works out completely um, and he chooses to pick this essay up again and make it the kind of core section of a much longer essay just called Ankara. Which is, it's completely repurposed. So this essay is now an ode to the new miraculous Republican modern Ankara. (laughs) And he. Pads this central piece about the fire. He pads it with all kinds of discussions about past and present and the old alphabet and the new alphabet and what old door knockers used to look like and new door knockers and, you know, all the different phases of Ankara and which ones he's seen. And then we get to the section which is the repurposed and heavily edited mm-hmm. <laughs> um, account of this Ankara fire in 1916. And it's Fascinating because he has very subtly removed those implications of agency and intentionality, not to completely exculpate, but to kind of make generic this experience. And suddenly it was not just the Armenians that suffered. There was a rabbi running in the street. There was a, he he specifically tags um, to show us that this was some kind of universal catastrophe in Ankara. Um, And so and um, and yet, you know, as I I translate a long section, the the end of it is, again, he just can't resist putting some ambivalence and putting some criticism of this CUP past. Right. So he ends with this whole section about walking toward the train station at one point back then and seeing uh, a construction worker building the foundations of this CUP club that was being built then, which is the foundation later of the um, parliament. And so what is he saying? He's talking about the, you know, what is at the root? What is the foundation of the Republic? Is this CUP presence, this kind of ghost of the CUP? And of course the construction worker is a madman. The construction worker is kind of not making any sense and talking about how, oh, one day this is all going to be full of houses and palaces and, and it's, it's just a very, it's a moment replete with a lot of (laughs) ideas and, and contradictions that like, Oh, he's right. This madman is right. This actually, it is going to be miraculous and it is going to have this ugliness at the foundation of it at the same time. And it's just, I just, it's, um, his writings give us this much more variegated and much more nuanced, uh, perspective on what it must have been like to be an intellectual like politics aside even but just to be an intellectual a thinking person observing these changes that were going on right and these contradictions hypocrisies whatever you want to call them and and yeah i agree i think the ankara the series of of ankara pieces is a really beautiful illustration of that
0: yeah well i mean and it's a good illustration of what makes the book such a very nice book. So, uh, yeah, we we've only scratched the surface of it really. And so I hope people listening will take the time to go find the book. It was published just this year, so it's out and available. And this book is published in 2021. Your last book was published in 2011. So you, you're kind of on a 10-year cycle, it seems like, for books, maybe. Uh, but the last thing I'm just curious about is, are, is there any project you're launching into for the next 10-year cycle? Or not yet. You're taking a break.
1: <laughs> I, I wish I could take a break. I can't I can't seem to do that. So I'm now, um, you know, y- you may have noticed that both books um, kind of have – Istanbul is their stage in a lot of ways, um, and so with this, my new interest is just diving into Istanbul, actually, urban history of Istanbul, and just going for it <laughs> in all its complexity. So that's all I'll say for now, but I'm excited about it.
0: Well, that's that's wonderful. I, I look I look forward to maybe sooner than ten years in seeing that uh, the next book, right? <laughs> in
1: Inshallah, Inshallah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Well, thank
0: you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ruben, it's great.